All right, well, let's go ahead. We'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. All right, God, thank you again for the Lord's Day. Thank you for this opportunity to look at your Word and even be in, a, in the Old Testament, Lord, and, and seeing your work among the nations then, and specifically through the people of Israel. And we want to really, God, elevate your sovereignty and your faithfulness tonight. And so I ask that you would uh, help me with that and uh, that we would, we would see these things about you as you want us to, and then that you would be glorified in it. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so um, remember kind of the main theme of that we're uh, looking at Ezra, that God is preparing the place and the people uh, for the arrival of the Messiah. We're dealing with uh, five-something-ish uh, B.C. into the 400-something-ish B.C. So you'll remember that in between um, the, you know, the last of the Old Testament prophet, like uh, Malachi, and the arrival of Jesus, you have about 400 years. And this is at the very end of the um, very end of Old Testament history for us. Uh, Adam, do you guys need uh, the handout? Same as last week's, but if you don't have it, we can bring... Okay, I'll... What's that? You got them. Okay, good, good. And here, I'll leave these with you, Joe, if anybody else comes in. Thanks. And it is God fulfilling... Uh, kind of the, one of the theme verses is God uh, fulfilling His purpose, right, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And He has this purpose... And he's working it out across human history and among the nations and then specifically within the nation of Israel for all of that time in and through what we call the Old Testament of Scripture. So we're at the tail end of that history in which he is primarily dealing with the Jewish people. In Ezra chapter 1, as you look at this now, as we'll uh, look at Ezra chapter 1, we have in the very first chapter, but specifically the first verse, uh, two uh, prophecies that God had made um, that are coming to pass. And I'll well, point both of those out tonight, and that's pretty much what we'll, we'll get to. But if you see in verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings, 
for the house of God that is in Judah. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. All right, we'll end our, the reading there. Now, there are two, what, what we have happening here is that there are two prophecies that God is fulfilling in these verses that are mentioned in verse 1. The one is um, pretty straightforward. It's uh, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. That's the first one, and we'll look at that verse in just a moment. That, the, that they would be there for 70 years or that this all would go on for 70 years and then God would visit them and bring them back into their land. But then there's another prophecy we probably won't get to tonight. We'll have to look at next week and I will devote all attention to Cyrus, which is really a, just a fascinating story of God's providence and sovereignty in using Cyrus and bringing them back. And there are some historical elements that I think really uh, enliven and enrich the whole story, like things that we can learn about Cyrus from outside of the Scripture that just really shine light on everything that's happening here, okay? But this one, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, and then Cyrus is the other one, because as we'll see next week, he was prophesied about uh, over a century and a half prior to his birth, before even the destruction of Jerusalem itself by Isaiah, he was named by name that this would be the one who would do this. And there was a tradition and rumor that uh, Daniel would have even shown uh, Cyrus this prophecy so that he would understand what he was called to do, but we don't know that for sure. That's all extra-biblical uh, conjecture, but, but um, what we do know is what has happened, and that's what we'll focus on in here. Now, um, he is Cyrus is the king of Persia. I thought I wanted I wanted to spend just uh, a couple of minutes reviewing what are the four main uh, biblical empires that we encounter that were so instrumental in God's dealings with his people and with ultimately his plan to uh, bring in the Messiah. And these, these major empires are really important. This is not on your handout, by the way. So you have to take notes if you want. The first one I'll make mention of is the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire. Uh, this was a vast and long-standing empire that invaded the northern tribes of Israel, taking many of them into captivity and supplanting Gentile peoples in that area. Uh, that land, so if you think about the way that Israel is, you remember now, after Rehoboam, God had promised that he was going to separate Israel. So you had the ten northern tribes and you had the two southern tribes. Um, the central part, once they divided, in the north they had the capital of Samaria. That was their capital. In the south, of course, the capital was Jerusalem. And that is where, of course, you've got Judah down here, which is, as we read in there, you've got the tribes of Benjamin and Judah in the south. 
Those are the ones we're dealing with right now, okay? In this middle part is Samaria. They had established their own cap- uh, capital, and so and, um, when, when you read in the book of Kings, you know, the king of Israel was such and such or whatever, they're in Samaria. And then you had the two, there are two northern tribes, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, which is primarily the land of Galilee in the time of Jesus. And this becomes important. So in the time of Jesus, then up here you had Galilee, but that's forward in, in uh, time. But what happens is, so Assyria is used by God to invade these northern tribes, and, and Samaria particularly, and their policy at that time, the Assyrian Empire was, you take, and remember what an empire, an empire is not like a country. An empire is a series of countries that have been taken over by the empire. So these are the days of just coming in and this is our land now and that's what we do. Uh, you know, the most modern example of that we have would be the USSR when it was in existence, right? And you had, some, uh, you had an empire, essentially, and all those now that have become their own countries, and that's why everybody's watching and say, wow, they're invading Ukraine again, almost doing the same thing that they used to do, like, this is our land, we're going to take it. But that's what they did in these times, and these empires would va- uh, stretch over all these regions. And so... God used them, the Assyrian Empire, to discipline his people in the northern tribes of what the, the center piece of that being Samaria. And they would export some out and they would import other people, foreigners, into that land. This becomes important in Ezra because we're going to encounter some of these people, or most likely who are some of these people, in chapter 4 when there are adversaries who oppose the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, many believe because they say, well, we worship the God of Israel. And what they're saying is uh, what these people are are probably the beginnings of what we call Samaritans. And the reason the Samaritans were not liked by the Jews by the time you get to Jesus' day is because these were Jewish people mixed with Gentiles and they had sort of a form of the Jewish religion and they had their own temple there. You remember the woman at the well? She said, we Samaritans worship here. You all say you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. So that's all the beginning parts of that are in that Assyrian empire. That doesn't have a lot to do with Ezra, but you need to have an understanding of that basically. And then when we get to chapter four, you'll see, oh, that's why they're saying you can't help us rebuild. They came, we want to help you. And they say, you can't. It's because it's in this region of Samaritans, probably many Gentiles that were brought in there. And then some of the Jews that kind of mixed with the Gentiles and you had the syncretism of worship that was going on already at that point. And then hundreds of years later, then you had the Samaritan situation we see. Okay, so that's the Assyrian Empire. The next major empire, of course, is the one we're very familiar with. That's the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire was ruled originally by Nebuchadnezzar, right? And we know all the stories about him in the book of Daniel, because Daniel was one of his exportees, if that's a word, from Judah out to um, bringing them into their capital of, uh, of Babylon and uh, in all of the things that take place there. But God used Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon 
over the series of three captivities, and we'll look at those in more detail, or uh, deportations on the back of your handout. The first, second, and third deportation, there was a series of them where they invade in Jerusalem, they do their thing, they bring people out, they went back in, they bring people and the temple vessels out, etc. And that'll tie into our 70-year fulfillment in a moment. But over that, so he's using, so Assyria was used for, um, so this is Israel. All right. And this is Judah down here. And the Assyrians were um, for Samaria and then the uh, Babylonian Empire, Babylon, well, no, Babylonian, whatever, you can't read my writing anyway, in the southern. So he's using Babylonians to invade the southern tribes down here and specifically the capital of that area of Judea, which is, um, which is Jerusalem. And, uh, and then after, what, what's interesting now, and this is what ties in with, with Ezra. So you have that Babylonian empire, you have Nebuchadnezzar, but then arises the Persian empire. And they come in at a time when the Babylonian empire is collapsing politically and every other thing. You remember the account of the handwriting on the wall. What was his name? Belshazzar or something to this effect. And uh, he's, it's uh, the whole empire, Babylonian empire, there's a lot of distrust and a lot of political problems going on at that time. They're collapsing. And in comes now this man, Cyrus, this leader of the new Persian empire, and they become the new political leader. And it's under him and his policies that we'll look at more specifically next week. This is fascinating because this isn't just biblical history. It's actually acknowledged secular history, quote-unquote, tracing these things, that his policy was different than the Assyrians' policy or the Babylonians' policy. His was one of a, really, a freedom of religion among the nations over which he ruled, which is going to help us get these Jewish people back to their land to be able to reestablish their worship. Interesting, uh, I saw a little documentary on Cyrus and his writings and things that have been found. And there was a Greek writer that kind of wrote all about Cyrus and his policies and stuff. And some of the founders of the United States had access to that. And some of that was used even in the formation of our country and some of classical education, realizing what would be best as we're going to establish this new system of government, what should that look like? Just interesting thing, and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that next week. But this Persian Empire, this is where our story's picking up. So Cyrus is the king of the Persian Empire. Now, after that, and it doesn't really affect our study in Ezra and Nehemiah, but the next major empire to emerge is, of course, the Greek Empire. And uh, through the spread of Alexander the Great throughout this, the, the empire goes um, uh, the Greek language, which is very significant on two levels. Uh, first of all, so, so throughout the empire, the dominant language after the Greek empire was, of course, Greek. And lo and behold, what God was doing, I think, it seems like anyway, preparing the world with a language, with a common language through which the New Testament could be distributed out. Because the New Testament of our Bibles 
was written in Greek. And so the known world at that time was being prepared now for the New Testament to be brought. Because what we know is even all the apostles spoke Greek. Peter spoke Greek, he wrote in Greek. Matthew spoke Greek, he wrote in Greek. John spoke Greek, he wrote in Greek. Paul spoke Greek, he wrote in Greek. It's like it was the common language of the empire. That's why you find the New Testament written in the Greek language and being spread out by that time. Now, somebody may just say, well, that's just a quinky dink or whatever, but those of us who know that God is working His plan see no quinky dink in that. That is truly God preparing the entire known world to receive a common language in which the gospel be, could be written down and distributed and even preached and proclaimed. All of the people at that time in the New Testament had their other languages. The Jews were speaking Aramaic and their place. They still had retained the Hebrew, some of it. Oh, and not only the New Testament, this is interesting, but in the, in, uh, this has nothing to do again with this, but in the intervening time between, um, you know, those 400 intervening years between Malachi and, and Jesus arriving, and that's the spread of the Greek empire and the Greek language, the Jews uh, made a, a copy of the Old Testament of the Bible as well. And do you know what translate what they translated the Old Testament into? What language? The Greek, right? That's why you'll hear some people say the Septuagint means 70. And it's these 70 scholars that got together. They translate the Hebrew, which was originally written in Hebrew and Aramaic, and they translate that into the Greek language. Now you have an entire Bible translated in the Greek language and being spread out. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, some of the quotes that our New Testament authors will give of the Old Testament were not from the Hebrew Bible. They were actually from the Greek translation, the Septuagint of the Bible. would have been a Bible that they commonly used. So we see God even in that next stage. You, we think he's, we call him the silent years or whatever, 400 years. God is working in those 400 years. He's preparing for the arrival of his Messiah and the proclamation of the gospel beyond that. And then, of course, the next major empire would be the Roman Empire it is what you find with when Christ arrives, okay? But I wanted to bring those out, and I wanted to make this point. We should note that when it comes to nations, when it comes to empires, God is the one who both establishes them and de-establishes them. And He uses these empires and nations for His own purpose. So it is not, it is, it is literally irrelevant if the leader of an empire is a pagan or not, which they all were, of course. But God is going to use that leader of that empire, that nation, for His purposes, whether they are knowing they're cooperating in this process or not. That's fascinating. Because He would use the Assyrian and the Babylonian empires both to discipline His people. Then, ironically to us, would actually go after them after they discipline his people, but this is the way God is working through these things. He uses them to discipline his people through the, the Assyrians up in the northern tribes and the Babylonians in Jerusalem, and then on a positive way, quote-unquote, uses these, the leader of this 
uh, empire to send his people back. And all we see is God's absolute sovereignty uh, rising to the surface. I'll show you one verse. Let me, let me show you this in Romans 13. You're probably familiar with this, but in this, uh, in this place, it's a good, good place to talk about it. So if we look at Romans 13, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear? Obey them, etc., etc. Now look at verse 4. For he, that is the, the ruler, the Nebuchadnezzar, the... Um, uh, Cyrus, he is God's servant for your good. Now, that word servant, that underlying word is uh, diakonos, which means we use it for deacon. So, if you think about a deacon at a church, um, that's how God uses these rulers over these nations for his own purposes. Um, he's using them all over the place. So, even the outside of Israel history of the world, and even now as we look at all the nations who are at play and all the political leaders at play, not just in our own, I'm talking worldwide, we have to have um, this perspective upon it all and upon them all that they are God's servant and they are being used by God to fulfill His purposes. And uh, that can be in uh, atrocities or it can be in very good things. It can be in both of those things. It's connected somewhat to what we're looking at in Romans 8. All things work together for good. What is the good? The conformity to Christ of His people, their ultimate glorification, the bringing on of all of the eternal state in the new heavens and new earth. He's doing all of this simultaneously. You know, you read your paper, watch the news, and the idea is it can feel sometimes so out of control and be very... Uh, disconcerting to us and we can feel like you know such a small fish in a big pond and we have no control over all of what we see happening that's absolutely disastrous in many many circumstances of it but we need to uh, this is really important for the church of Jesus Christ to have a solid understanding of the absolute sovereignty of God and knowing that no matter what he's working these things through to his accomplished means and purposes. He's working out his plan, right? Um, as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. So these, uh, like the king of Persia, all of these empires, these are very important things for us to look at today. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are books about God and his sovereignty and his faithfulness and fulfilling his purposes in Christ. And his use of pagan empires to do that, despite the failures of his people, only serves to further amplify his sovereignty. And um, so when you're, we're reading these things throughout Ezra, it just leaps off the page 
as the writer wants the people of God to see that they couldn't have accomplished this on their own. They could not have made what needed to be done happen. Them go back, building the temple, rebuilding the wall. None of this could have happened except for God working and not through them initially, but through these pagan kings, right? Okay. Now, he says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Um, Let me look at your hand out here for a moment. See what we got. Oh, okay, let's talk about Jeremiah now for, for a, few, uh, a couple of minutes. This was obviously a prophecy that he's talking about from Jeremiah 29.10 is the primary one. That's on your handout down there t- towards the bottom. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So that's what we're dealing with, right? This is what he was told, uh, that they were told through Jeremiah. But Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Uh, That's because he had a real um, bummer of a ministry in some ways. Uh, He was... Over the period of time from, and the handout's a little different, it's, it's not worded right. The reign of Josiah is when his um, ministry picks up. What's happening under Josiah? Reform. reform, right? It's good stuff. Josiah's bringing reform. There's the laws rediscovered. Things are happening. So he's during that reign. But then his reign, though, then runs... Uh, to after the destruction of Jerusalem. And you can read all of that, Second Chronicles 34 to 36. So he saw good, and then he saw bad and real bad. And most likely the book of Lamentations, which is a lament, uh, a series of three laments, really, three song laments, through after the fall of Jerusalem and the lament that he issues through that. So he saw, he has seen the good, and he is uh, seen the bad. Uh, the Lord, here on this verse is here, the Lord told him, Jeremiah 1, verses 9 and 10, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. In other words, and if you read through the time, read through Jeremiah, he doesn't just prophesy against Judah and Jerusalem. He prophesies against nations and their destructions as well. So the Lord is saying, I have put you over these nations and kingdoms in this way, and you will pluck up and break down and destroy and overthrow. Now, this is really interesting language because he's saying, Essentially, what we're learning about the Word of God is that the Word of God accomplishes what it says. So, in other words, if through Jeremiah, God says, I will destroy such and such a nation, that very Word that God speaks accomplishes it. You see what I mean? It doesn't, it, it is what is accomplishing it. Jeremiah himself isn't set over these nations to pluck up or destroy. He had no power to do that. He was just like you and me. What is doing it? 
The word of the Lord through him carries the power to do is exactly what he's, he's talking about here. There's a lot of discussions now in some Christian circles about you know, the power of your speech and you can declare things to come into being and things that can happen. But friends, not really. Maybe not at all. Not at all, I'll say. Your word doesn't create. Your word can't make happen. Our words are just the words of human beings. It's the word of God, though, that once it's spoken, it happens. This is why in Genesis 1, again, we always refer back to creation so instructive for us. The, word, the Lord speaks, and it happens. He doesn't send down a construction crew. He doesn't create through people or human beings or means. It's His word that carries the power to make things happen, right? So he had this particular ministry, and he says, for our purposes today with Ezra, he said, or the Lord said through Jeremiah, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back uh, to, the, uh, to this place. The fulfillment of prophecy <clears throat> is one of probably the most convincing proofs that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, no, other, no other word, no other book can claim this kind of authoritative God says it and it happens kind of thing, right? Isaiah has a wonderful quote when God is comparing himself in these verses in Isaiah I think roughly 44 to 48 or so. He's comparing himself to the false gods, uh, even that his own people are worshiping. And he says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. So we see that the fulfillment of prophecy is what, when God says something's going to happen and then it happens, is the convincing proof we need that the Bible is the authoritative (coughs) word of God. So he says that he's going to bring them back after 70 years, but if you do the math, (laughs) of the actual date of Cyrus's decree, scholars run into a minor issue that needs to be resolved, is that there weren't quite 70 years in the time that they do uh, the math for that in coming into Cyrus's decree from the time of their uh, deportation. However, there are some explanations to that, and this gives us a, a kind of a little uh, a taste of uh, prophetic literature, prophecies, and being careful with how we proclaim they're going to come to pass. Because sometimes they all come to pass the way God says they were and how God had in his mind as he's declaring these things. But there are times when these things didn't happen in a way we would have thought that that was the way it should happen. Let me give you this example. You'll see the three deportations here. Uh, the first one uh, was they came in in, in 605 to, uh, 606-605, roughly at that time, B.C. That's when Daniel and the temple vessels were taken. 
okay? But the time of the pronouncement of um, this uh, fulfillment uh, in De- uh, Ezra chapter 1, we're dealing roughly, uh, I don't have the date here, but it's less than this. I, I thought I put the date down for that of this particular prophecy, because we know we can date it, even secular scholars can date it to the first year of Cyrus's uh, rulership over there, uh, over Persia. But now notice that in 536 B.C. is when we have the temple foundation laid. That's Ezra chapter 3. And that is exactly 70 years later. So many scholars, as they look at this, they say, that's one way this was fulfilled. And by the way, prophecy can be fulfilled in a couple of multiple ways. We see that oftentimes in Scripture. So one way it was fulfilled is from the actual deportation, the first deportation to the laying of the temple, 70 years exactly. And then in the second deportation, 597 B.C., that's when Ezekiel was taken in more of the temple vessels. But then the third deportation, 586 B.C., the temple was finally destroyed. The temple vessels were taken. But then in 516 B.C., they celebrate the temple being finished. And both of those are the laying of the temple uh, foundation and the, um, the temple being fi- finished. In Ezra, we can date exactly, pretty much. We can get right in that range. And we got ourselves 70-year fulfillments. There was one guy I read, this was interesting, and he said, so he, he doesn't take these, and there's a couple more explanations that people get. You know how when they, you have a discrepancy in the Bible and everybody launches on it and says this is a discrepancy but then when you research it out a little bit you can find multiple ways that could exactly be exact you know as they said as we see here but one man said and he wouldn't be a liberal scholar at all he'd been more on a conservative realm and he actually said um, God's mercy uh, or for the mercy of his people God's discipline was shortened or something to that effect now I don't buy into that but the idea is that sometimes when we see these things, um, we have to really investigate uh, how God in, has fulfilled this or how it will happen. And it does make us humble in our thoughts about even what's going to happen in the future because of that fact. Like this is what's put forward to us, but then as God works that thing through, it may look differently though it's fulfilled so you'll say oh that's yeah i see that now but it might be slightly different in what we would have initially said because for us it would be much cleaner if from the actual first deportation to ezra one this was all clean for us and that makes it better but um, when we see what god is doing and it's also important to understand that the uh well never mind we won't go into that so anyway, these are the three de- uh, deportations and how we, be- I'm, I'm landing on this, though if you want to do your own study on how those 70 years can work out, you'll see a, peop- a couple of people come up with some different things. Okay, any, what are, any questions or um, comments on that? Because I want to save Cyrus for next week as a whole thing and we'll look at the siren cylinder and such. So what que- any questions or comments on what we've covered here? Yeah, Adam. Mm-hmm. 
Like you mean um, Daniel saying, yeah, yeah, so like Daniel instructing um, Cyrus about this? Yes, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, that's what was tied in because he had access to, apparently, that prophecy in Jeremiah. Is that what you're asking? I have no idea. I'd have to look at that. We can look at that maybe for next week and begin with that. I haven't looked at it in a while, yeah. I just looked at Jeremiah's this week, but I know what you're talking about in there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? I really think that the topic of, and I'll end with this, this idea of God's sovereignty being so extensive, so all-encompassing, so powerful, being central for us as Christians when our world is shaken. Just getting the time that you can restabilize your mind in the uh, and root it in this idea of God's absolute sovereignty. Like even in things when our lives just feel so out of control or think the rug gets pulled out from under us and things happen that we're uncomfortable with. This, I mean, and I think we got to fight through this, right? You got to just be like, um, God is sovereign over this. This is the plan, and God is with me in this, and God will help me through this. And um, being rooted in a good um, understanding of the sovereignty of God, just reminding yourselves of things like this that you just sit back and say, who is a God like our God? Who could do this but our God, right? and finding stabilization in him. So, all right, well, good. All right, next year, or next week, uh, won't be next year, it'll be next week, uh, we'll look at Cyrus, and, and that's a really good one to talk through, and then we'll probably start going down the rest of these. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your goodness to us, especially in your word, as you have just revealed who you are in the way that we can trust you fully. We thank you that you are a God that fulfills all your promises, your prophecies. If you say it's going to happen, it will. And we can trust you in that. And I pray that we would just be stabilized even for this week. Everyone here, stabilized for this week in the absolute sovereignty of God and the fact, God, that you love us in Christ. We praise you for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. Okay, guys, thank you.